My name is Paul Riley, also known as Political Paul, and this is The Riley Rant, a weekly podcast where we discuss all things political, professional, and personal. Let's rant. Thank you for tuning in to the 27th official episode of The Riley Rant. As was noted in the intro, we discuss all things political, professional, and personal. And this week, I want to focus specifically on the political, as now I think it's the right time for us all to talk about taxes. If you've been following politics over the last three weeks, you'll know that the Republicans are making significant strides in getting their signature tax reform bill through the House and Senate and ultimately on the president's desk by the end of the year. As early as November 16th, there was reporting that the House passed their version of the tax reform plan. And we've just received word this weekend that the Senate Republicans are hoping to get their signature tax reform bill passed as early as Thursday, November 30th. If they're successful, the House and the Senate will enter into a conference committee and they'll iron out the last little bits of details and disagreements and be able to pass a comprehensive bill that can pass the House and the Senate and ultimately make it onto Trump's desk by the end of the year. And so with so much activity around tax reform with the Republicans slowly but surely trying to get this measure passed in the Senate and then ultimately come together to reform the bill, I thought this 27th rant this 27th official episode will be a great time to really inform you on the details of the plan, to share my perspective and my thoughts so that you can ultimately leave more informed on why this is happening. You have context on where this is coming from and you have an understanding of how this will not only impact you and your family members, but Americans more broadly. So let's start by looking at the Republican-controlled Congress and the Trump administration in 2017. If you've been following politics, if you've been following cable news or news publications like the Washington Post, the New York Times, whatever you're publication of preference is, what you may have found is a consistent theme around Trump and the Republicans in Congress being unable to lock down any significant legislative accomplishments throughout the year 2017. Now, when you say that, many Republicans will immediately push back and say, no, 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 we got Neil Gorsuch confirmed to the Supreme Court. That's an accomplishment. And many pundits will agree that getting Neil Gorsuch confirmed to the Supreme Court was an effective win. But when you step back and really think about purely legislative wins, you really can't find any legislative accomplishments throughout 2017. Now, what we have seen is a president use the limited powers that he has with executive orders to wreak havoc uh, on the American people in the legislative process, whether that be with the travel ban or with this elimination of protection from Haitians who were affected by the earthquake and who came to the U.S. Uh, for sanctuary and for refuge, or when you look at stepping out of climate agreements and the Trans-Pacific Partnership. A lot of these actions that have been taken by the president have not been done in step with the legislative branch. They've actually been executive orders. And so even those, even though they have a significant impact on the American people, we can't even consider those quote-unquote legislative wins. And so when you think about the attempts by Trump and the Republican-controlled Congress, one of the most glaring examples of a failed legislative achievement would have to be Obamacare, repealing and replacing Obamacare. Now, when Trump was on the campaign trail, he talked about how this would be very easy. He could get this done on day one, if not day one, by day 100. Day 100 turned into day 150. Day 150 turned into day 200 in office, and the Republicans were still struggling to repeal and replace Obamacare. There were multiple attempts, and it failed on the Senate floor. Perhaps the dagger occurred when Senator John McCain, fresh off of his diagnosis of a brain cancer of a brain tumor actually walked onto the Senate floor and put his thumb down 
showing his disapproval of the bill. He was the third Republican to vote no, ultimately killing the chance that the bill would pass in the Senate, ultimately thwarting the Republicans' effort to repeal and replace Obamacare. And so when you look at the fact that there's been no legislative accomplishments, their first major piece of reform, repeal and replace Obamacare, that failed. And so now we have the Republicans turning their energy, their attention onto tax reform with hopes that they can get some sort of achievement. And as you begin to look at the tax reform bill, similar to the Obamacare repeal and replace, you see a lot of people coming out against it because the bill really contains some components that will really hurt a number of Americans. At a high level, the tax plan seeks to cut $1.5 trillion in revenue to the government, which would be in, in the form of tax cuts to Americans, particularly some of the wealthiest Americans. In addition to tax cuts for Americans, we also see corporations making out well in this tax plan. Right now, corporations pay a 35% tax rate. If you're a savvy corporation who can write off deductions, you're oftentimes not paying that 35%. You're oftentimes paying lower than that. But the bill would seek to lower corporations' tax burden from 35% to 20%. So in this plan, wealthy individuals and corporations make out like bandits. They're getting a significant amount of, of, of tax relief through tax cuts. And the assumption is that they'll use this to help rebuild the economy. And that's what's so fascinating about this bill is that the Republicans are cutting revenue to the government by $1.5 trillion in the form of tax cuts to the wealthy and corporations. And then they're arguing that these tax cuts will pay for themselves through economic growth. And we'll get on that a little later, but that's sort of the thinking. And there's another big component of the bill that would actually eliminate the deductions of state and local taxes for individuals in uh, states across the country. And this has a significant impact on people who are living in states with higher taxes. So think California, think New Jersey, think New York. What the Republican tax bill is trying to do is eliminate those deductions to say, no, you're going to have to pay state and local taxes and you're going to have to pay uh, federal taxes on that same amount. So your tax burden sort of increased because the federal government's not looking at and deducting and providing relief for the significantly high local and state taxes that you've paid. And this really affects people, as I said before, in states like California, New Jersey, and New York. And so as we think about this bill with an understanding of what it seeks to accomplish, I want to quickly just run through four major areas that I think will help you to have a better understanding of what this bill seeks to accomplish and, and how it will impact all of us. And those four topics are, they all happen to start with the letter R. And I think that this will really help to guide us and to really inform your understanding of this issue as the Senate goes to vote on this in the coming week. So the four topics are Reaganomics, Reversal, real-life implications, and the real reason. And I think as we go through these different topics, you'll get a clear understanding of my perspective, you'll have more context, and you'll ultimately be more informed. So let's start with Reaganomics. Reaganomics is a term that was used to describe the economic principles of Ronald Reagan. He passed uh, tax reform in 1986, and many people coined you know, Reaganomics and associated with this idea of trickle-down economics. Now, if you're not an economics major or you're not familiar with these different terms, I want to quickly define and give you some context around what Reaganomics is and what trickle-down economics entails. Trickle-down economics is the belief that if you cut taxes for the wealthiest individuals and if you cut taxes for the largest corporations in the United States, that in doing that, you will actually bring about economic re reform, that you'll boost the economy, that you'll bring about growth. So if I cut taxes on Google and on Facebook and on all these major Microsoft and these major corporations, and if I cut taxes on, say, Warren Buffett and all these wealthy individuals, they will use the money that they save and, and not paying taxes. And if you're a wealthy person, you'll invest that back in the economy. Or if you're a corporation, you'll use that money to or those savings that you're not paying in taxes to now build out new offices, hire new people, raise the wages of your, your current employees. And the thinking is that in doing this and in really cutting taxes at the highest level, 
that these benefits will trickle down to the lowly workers at the bottom. And if you look at history and, and, and consensus on this, many people don't agree with this assumption. And, and, and some of you listening may have laughed at that sort of philosophy to think that those benefits at the top would actually trickle down and impact the bottom people. So let's go through the major tenets of Reaganomics. The first assumption is that the wealthy are going to spend more, that if I cut taxes on Warren Buffett, if I cut taxes on Beyonce or Jay-Z, that they're going to see those savings and say, oh my gosh, let me spend more, let me go buy more clothing, let me buy another car, let me buy another house. But that is not actually true. Tony Nitti of Forbes, he notes how the Tax Policy Center released their report on the House's tax reform bill and the results were not good. The study concluded that the $1.5 trillion tax cuts proposed in the plan would not pay for themselves, as the Republicans suggest. In fact, after accounting for economic growth, the plan will result in $1.3 trillion in tax cuts, and these sweeping cuts under the GOP plan would only bring about around $160 billion in additional revenue. So what Tony Nitti is basically saying is that the Republicans are arguing that if we cut taxes, we cut $1.5 trillion in revenue. Don't worry, we're adding to the deficit and the debt, but that's going to be fine because the economic growth that we're going to create through cutting these taxes are going to pay for themselves and a higher GDP and then people making more money and people investing more in the economy. But what Tony is trying to say is, no, actually, that's not the case. Of that $1.5 trillion in cuts, you're only expected to see growth of about $160 billion. And he argues that this growth is going to be so small, only about $160 billion, uh, because as the Tax Policy Center notes, the wealthiest individuals are not prone to spending additional income that they receive. The Tax Policy Center notes that over the next 10 years, it is the richest 5% of taxpayers who enjoy the biggest benefits under the House tax plan. And these taxpayers tend to spend a smaller portion of any increase in after-tax income when compared to lower-income taxpayers. So let me break that down for you. What Tony and the Tax Policy Center are basically saying is that if you cut taxes on the wealthiest individuals, as this plan does, that the top 5% of taxpayers, if they receive additional money through decreased taxes, are actually less prone to spend more money than, say, someone who's in the middle class who needs that money and will pump that money back into the economy more aggressively and quickly and faster than, say, someone who already has millions upon millions of dollars in their bank account. So that right there already pushes back against this idea that if you cut taxes on the wealthy, that they're going to spend more, build up consumer demand, and help the economy. No, actually, they're not going to spend as much as, say, someone who is in the middle class who gets a few extra dollars after taxes and who's going to have more of an incentive because they need to buy things and pay bills and things of that sort. They're going to have more of an incentive to pump that money back into the economy. So that finding by Tony Nitti and the Tax Policy Center places a dent in that first tenet of Reaganomics and trickle-down economics, this belief that if you pump money into wealthy individuals' bank accounts through tax decreases and tax cuts, that they're going to spend. That's not the case. The second tenet is that if you cut taxes on corporations, as they're trying to do in this plan, again, they're trying to cut taxes from 35% to 20%, the thinking is that if you cut taxes by 15% for these major corporations like Microsoft and Google and, and all the big players, that they're going to take this money and reinvest. But Alana Samuels of The Atlantic, she sort of challenges this notion, uh, similar to Tony Nitti did when looking at that, that tenant for wealthy individuals. She notes that America's incentive system for long-term investment is broken. The average holding time for stocks has fallen from eight years in 1960 to eight months in 2016. Almost 80% of chief financial officers at 400 of America's largest public companies say they would sacrifice a firm's economic value to meet quarterly earning expectations. And companies are spending more and more on purchasing their own shares to drive stock prices up rather than investing in equipment or employees. They also coined this term short-termism, which has become prevalent in America. The author notes that there's a growing culture that we must focus solely on quarterly performance 
and that if you don't hit your quarterly expectations, that'll send the market into a frenzy. People will begin to panic. And they argue that this culture actually came about after the financial crisis where many uh, traders and, and lenders lost a lot of money. And so they're very big on trying to get that money back as quickly as possible. And they're very skeptical of companies that don't hit those very narrow quarterly estimates, so much so that if leaders aren't able to perform, these individuals and traders would actually prefer that those leaders be removed from their posts. Then you factor in at these companies the fact that CEOs and members of the, the C-suite are often paid based off of stock-based compensation, which means that a CEO at a major company may get a, a salary of $1 million, but the bulk of their salary, the great portion, the great percentage of their salary is actually tied to stock performance, to how well the company is performing. So when you look at all of these truths relative to each other, you find a very alarming fact, and that's that when you cut taxes on corporations, they may not necessarily be incentivized to invest that money into capital investments, building out different offices, hiring new employees, increasing their employees' wages. What you actually find is that these executives are so impacted by short-term gains by increasing the stock price, by hitting their quarterly earnings reports, that they've actually become risk-averse and that they're actually not as inclined to focus on long-term growth as opposed to those quick fixes, those short-term gains. And that's confirmed by this quote where they note that about 80% of CFOs at 400 large companies say they would risk the economic value of the company for short-term gains. And so we're seeing at the corporate level that there's a lot of risk aversion there in short-termism that people, particularly CEOs, are not looking necessarily at the five, 10-year plan because they understand that if they focus on that five, 10-year investment plan and maybe take a hit on profits now for future gains, they're going to be punished by the market. They're going to be punished by their shareholders. They're going to be punished by their board that they're more so focused on the short-term gain. And as articles have also noted, a lot of these companies are already sitting on trillions of dollars as is. These companies are... I shouldn't say they're not in need of additional money, but they already have a significant amount of money in their coffers, and they're still risk-averse. They're still hesitant to really aggressively invest in long-term capital projects, and that's an issue. And that sort of challenges this idea that these tax cuts for these corporations are going to bring about economic reform, when, if history is our guide, we'll actually realize that it may put more money in the corporation's pocket, but there's no guarantee that they're going to actually invest that back into employees, or they're going to invest that into capital expansion. But don't take my word for it. There was actually a study in 2014, 2014, by the National Bureau of Economic Research, and they published a study that found little evidence that corporate tax cuts boost economic activity unless they're implemented in a recession. So you have the article by Alana Samuels talking about how short-termism and how C-suite leaders are becoming more risk-averse. They're nervous about the market looking at their missed quarterly targets and punishing them for that. They can't focus on long-term gains. They can't really invest in employees or in capital. Then you have this study by the National Bureau of Economic Research from 2014 saying that tax cuts really don't have any sort of direct connection to boosting economic activity. But then what may be even more striking is that Gary Cohn, he's the financial advisor to the president, very senior in the Trump administration, and he actually went to an event with CEOs in conjunction with the Wall Street Journal. And he was talking about the tax plan. And one of the editors in the room, they actually said to the crowd of CEOs, they said, raise your hand if you're going to invest in capital after you receive this tax cut. Raise your hand if you're going to invest in more capital projects, more long-term investment. And not many CEOs raised their hands. And what's actually striking from the cliff is that Gary Cohn, he's actually sort of surprised. And he's saying, wait a minute, why aren't there more hands up? Why aren't more people raising their hands? And so I think all of that in, in conjunction with the short-termism, the study around how corporate tax cuts don't, there is no evidence that they boost economic activity. And then that anecdotal story of Gary Cohn going to CEOs and asking them if they're going to invest more with this tax cut and very few of them raising their hands. I think that can sort of debunk that second tentative trickle-down economics that states that if you give tax cuts to 
corporations, they're going to invest it into their businesses and into their employees and really boost the economy. It just doesn't sound accurate. It sounds great in theory, but maybe not so much in deed or in practice. So when you think about and hear about this tax plan, remember that first R, Reaganomics, and that idea of trickle-down economics. And when the Republicans tell you that the $1.5 trillion tax cut, which is going to decrease revenue to the federal government, when they try to tell you that's going to pay for itself through this increase, this magical amount of economic growth, think back to the evidence provided in that first segment. As the Tax Policy Center shows... The wealthy, particularly the top 5% of taxpayers who are going to benefit significantly from this tax cut, what they found is that those people are less prone to spend additional money after a tax cut when compared to people in the middle class. So we know that they're not going to be the ones driving that consumer demand. And then we know that corporations, based on the factors and the dynamics they're facing with traders and the stock market and focusing on short-termism and, and not wanting to piss off their shareholders or stakeholders, how they're going to be more risk-averse, really challenge the idea that trickle-down economics is going to make it to the bottom. Really think about that and don't be so quick to accept that as fact. The second R is reversal. And when I talk about reversal, it's around this shift in the Republican mindset. And we saw this in the previous episodes that I've done around health care reform and, and repealing and replacing Obamacare, where the Republicans from 2010 to 2017 said they're going to repeal Obamacare. You need to vote for us. Vote for me so I can repeal it. If we get power, we're going to repeal it. And then when they ultimately had power, they couldn't repeal it. The same thing is happening with this tax reform. If you look at the Republican stance over the past seven years, it's been we are the party of fiscal responsibility. We are the deficit hawks. We are not going to increase the deficit without having revenue neutral controls to ensure that we're not adding to the already huge debt that this country faces. Heather Long of the Washington Post touches on this hypocrisy when she notes that American taxpayers of tomorrow will pay a substantial portion of the bill for lower corporate taxes today. Republicans who bemoaned America's $20 trillion debt for years have now approved adding $1.5 trillion more to the national debt to pay for their tax cuts. This move is a sharp reversal from previous Republican promises of revenue-neutral tax reform, wrote the Nonpartisan Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget in a memo on Friday. And so what Heather Long of the Washington Post is getting at is this reversal that I've been talking about to you all in this second segment. The Republicans ran on being deficit hawks. We're going to make sure that we don't add to the deficit. We're going to make sure we don't add to the debt. And then when they get power, their first move is to impose tax cuts that are actually going to add $1.5 trillion to the nation's debt. And they're expecting us to believe that this is going to be such a magical proposal that it's going to pay for itself. That's actually not the case. John Harewood of NBC, he actually notes how bad this is going to be for us going forward. He states, Congress is speeding toward a budget plan that in the name of cutting taxes lets the government collect $1.5 trillion less revenue for the next 10 years. One big problem, the government needs more revenue as it is, a lot more. The biggest reason is as simple as it is inevitable. Millions of Americans retire each year to go on Social Security and Medicare. In January, the Congressional Budget Office projected a 2018 budget deficit of $487 billion, rising to triple that size by 2027. The cost of benefits for aging baby boomers propelled those rising deficits. Already, Social Security and Medicare compromise about 40% of federal spending and 8% of the economy. The only way for those numbers to go is up. In 2017, 45 million Americans received Social Security retirement checks. That rapid growth will continue in the following decade when the late boomers retire. By 2033, 77 million Americans will be eligible for Social Security. In addition, you have members of Congress talking about how the Pentagon needs more money and how we also need money for our decaying infrastructure. And so when you think about 
the contradictions that the Republican Party have been espousing in this tax reform bill, you see that they actually claim to be deficit hawks and they care about the debt, but they actually want to add $1.5 trillion to our debt over the next 10 years. And then you have them wanting to implement these tax cuts while also acknowledging that we need more money for the Pentagon to fight the threats that we face globally, that we need additional money for infrastructure, which is what Trump has been pushing for. And so when you look at that in the context of this tax reform plan, you have to ask yourself, where does the math add up? If you're cutting $1.5 trillion, we already have a $487 billion deficit for 2018 alone. How are we going to also fund the military? How are we going to also fund our decaying infrastructure? The answer cannot simply be that this tax cut will bring about magical, unimagined growth. It has to be more sensible than that, and we should all be appalled by this stark reversal in Republicans' approach to tax reform, where they went from revenue neutral to say, for every dollar we try to cut, we'll make sure that we have an additional dollar that's cut in spending. No, what they're trying to do is continue to add to the debt, and they're doing what they critique the Democrats are doing when they weren't in power. When the Republicans didn't control the House and the Senate, their major biting point was that the government is spending out of control, we're running out of money, but it's hard for me to see how they're not doing the same thing with this tax cut for the wealthy and the corporations. So that's how I hope that you'll begin to see the reversal. It's sort of a hypocritical turnabout, sort of a bait and switch to where they say one thing and then they switch up on you when they get into power. That's something you also need to take into account. So, so far we've covered Reaganomics, that first R. We've covered reversal, the second R, about how there's a hypocritical nature and them spending and added to the deficit and the debt when they were so opposed to it. The third R is around real-life implications. And I don't know if you've been following this story on social media of people who are going to be impacted adversely by this tax plan. One notable group are grad students. And Katie Riley of Time, she covers a graduate student at MIT who's going to fill the, the brunt of this new tax plan. So for those of you who aren't familiar with PhD programs, the way that they work is that the PhD student will enter the program and oftentimes they'll have tuition waivers. So their tuition will be covered and that's sort of a way to thank the student, not, not necessarily thank them, but that's sort of a way to reward the student for getting into the program, for serving as a teacher's assistant, as a PhD student, and then ultimately for helping to bring about research that's going to enhance the, the life of the university and really allow for hopefully publications and advancements in their respective fields. And so the normal setup that you see with PhD students is you know, many will receive tuition waivers to cover the cost of their tuition, and they'll also receive a stipend of about twenty-five dollars to $30,000. So before, let's say for sake of a, a typical PhD student, Sarah's in a PhD program. Sarah has her $50,000 tuition covered by the school as a tuition waiver. She receives $30,000 as a stipend to live and to eat. The government will only tax that $30,000 stipend as income, and she'll have the rest to pay for her rent and for meals. Under the GOP tax plan, they're saying, no, no, no. Your total income is not just that $30,000. It's the $50,000 that your tuition is being waived by the university. So your actual taxable income is $80,000. We're going to tax you at that rate. And so when that happens, that $30,000 uh, stipend is now going to be stripped in half because you now have to pay taxes on $80,000 of income versus $30,000 of income. And that reality is going to put a lot of PhD students in a lot of dire situations where you have some saying they're going to have to drop out and try to find a new profession altogether. You have some who are saying they're going to have to take out additional loans to make this work. But at the end of the day, it seems like a terrible practice to put into place, especially if you accept the premise that a highly educated population adds more value to the economy than more educated people will likely make more money and, and pump it into the economy, and that just having a highly educated population is a great benefit to the country. And so to see the ways in which we're treating PhD students, it's terrible, and it's just one group that will be adversely impacted by this tax plan. 
Another group are people living, as I mentioned in the intro, in those states like California, New Jersey, and New York. Right now, you can deduct those high state and local income taxes that you pay from your federal income taxes. So in a sense, the government is sort of acknowledging while you paid a lot of taxes on the state and local level, we'll deduct that from your federal burden so that when you pay federal taxes, we want to include that in the total, the total taxable amount. We're never trying to remove that. And it's actually not only pissed off Democrats, but also Republicans who live and who lead constituents in those states who say, this bill is going to screw my constituents over. It's going to cause them to pay more in taxes because the government is not acknowledging the tax they paid at the state and local level. And it's going to continue to tax all of their income, which means that in the, in the grand scheme of things, they're paying more taxes as they're paying a significant amount of taxes in their state and then a significant amount of taxes uh, to the federal government. When you look at uh, who else gets screwed over, it's the everyday American. Congress's Joint Committee on Taxation estimated the Senate plan would mean higher taxes beginning in 2021 for many families earning under $30,000 annually. By 2027, families making less than $75,000 would face tax boost, while those making more would enjoy tax cuts. And so when you look at all the groups affected from graduate and PhD students to uh, people who now have to pay exorbitantly high state and local taxes and high federal income taxes, and when you look at the fact that the average Americans are going to get screwed over in about five years, so by 2021, we're going to have people paying more taxes who make under 30000 And then 10 years from now, we're going to have people making less than $75,000 paying more in taxes. So this plan really hurts every different type of person in America, whether you're a student, whether you are living in a certain state, whether you're making a certain amount of money. And the public's becoming aware of this. A Quinnipiac poll shows that only 25% of Americans approve of this tax plan, that 61% think it helps the wealthy, and that 54% thinks that it will hurt them financially. So the American people are aware of what all is going on, and they understand that if this were to be passed into law, the benefits would really go to the top and to the corporations, and they may get a little bit of relief, but as was noted by the Congressional Joint Committee on Taxation, those benefits are going to run out in four to ten years, and they're going to end up paying more in taxes. So that takes me to the last R. We touched on Reaganomics, we touched on the reversal of the Republicans, we touched on the real-life implications, how this impacts grad students and people in certain states and individuals who are making under $30,000, under $75,000. But now let's get to the real reason, the final point. Why is this happening? Yes, it could be about the Republicans trying to get a legislative win because they failed to do so in 2017. But it actually is due to, and this is coming from the words of Republicans, it's due to the fact that their donor class will be pissed off if they don't get this passed. Derek Thompson of the Washington Post, he highlights this, and I want to remind you, this is coming from the mouths of Republicans in Congress. He cites them as saying they're cutting taxes for the rich, and there are two reasons why. The first is that Republican politicians, whose campaigns are often financed by wealthy conservative donors like Sheldon Addison and the Koch family, are worried that a failure to cut taxes on corporations will have a detrimental effect on contributions from the party's corporate libertarian wing. My donors are basically saying, get it done or don't ever call me again, Representative Chris Collins, a New York Republican, told The Hill. The financial contributions will stop if the GOP fails to deliver corporate tax cuts, Senator Lindsey Graham, a Republican from South Carolina, told NBC News. The donor class has concluded that the inaction of this administration in Congress is totally unacceptable, Josh Holmes, the former chief of staff to Senator Mitch McConnell, told CNN. Donors will be mortified if we didn't live up to what we've committed to on tax reform, Stephen Law, head of the Senate Leadership Fund, a super PAC, told the New York Post. So after hearing this, I hope that you're not surprised by why they're trying to jam this through. It's not about creating economic opportunity for all Americans. It's not about revivifying America's economy. What it boils down to is making sure that the donor class is happy, that the people who are pumping money into my campaign are satisfied with what we are doing. And it's so disheartening to see 
that the Republicans are going to continue to push forward with a bill that only 25% of Americans approve of, that members of their own party hate. About 13 Republicans in the House of Representatives voted against this because they knew it would hurt their constituents in California, New Jersey, and New York. And we realize that they're ignoring all of this. They're ignoring the cries of the American people. They're ignoring the frustration of the people who disapprove of the plan because they are beholden to the wealthy corporations and the wealthy individuals who give to their campaigns. And so as you look at this tax reform plan, as you continue to see the breaking news around it in the coming weeks, be wary of the claims of Reaganomics and trickle-down economics. Because if you're claiming that tax breaks for the wealthy and tax breaks for the corporations are going to actually boost economic growth, I would encourage you to look at the studies I referred to in the previous segment around how the National Bureau of Economic Research actually notes that, you know what, corporate tax cuts don't actually boost the economy. Or when you look at the CEOs of that Wall Street Journal event with Gary Cohn, who didn't raise their hand because they understand that they're not going to maybe invest in capital and in employees and in increased wages. They're going to rely on that short-termism because the dynamics in place are forcing them to focus on quarterly earnings versus long-term growth. So when you hear people try to push those trickle-down economics rhetoric, push back and say, hmm, the evidence isn't quite there. The corporations are not going to invest as much as you say. The wealthy are not going to spend as much as someone in the middle class would. So I'm not really buying that argument. Then after you get past that, that blatant lie around this is going to pay for itself through boosting the economy, then I want you to look at the hypocrisy and the reversal of the Republican Party. How they talked about when they were in the minority, we will never try to add to the deficit and the debt. We want to decrease the deficit and we want to chip away at the debt and we will always have a revenue neutral tax plan. And then when they get the power, they actually throw $1.5 trillion into the debt and expect that magical economic activity is going to pay it off when they said they would never do that when they were in the minority. So as you think about this tax plan, think about this blatant hypocrisy in the Republican Party around how they're viewing taxation, that the deficit hawks and the people who are concerned about the debt are actually more than willing to add to it the likes of $1.5 trillion over 10 years. But then after you get past that, the, the false narratives around trickle-down economics and the reversal and hypocrisy of the Republican Party, it's then important for you to realize the real-life implications of this tax bill. Similar to the repeal and replace where lives were at stake, where people's livelihoods, where people's opportunity to really live meaningful and, and prosperous lives was at stake, I would say the same is true for this tax reform bill. Namely, in that you have grad students who may have to drop out of school because they're going to be taxed on $80,000 of income, 50000 of which is tuition that is being offset by their services as teaching assistants, as you know, people giving back to the community through publications and advancing research in their respective fields. We also know that people making under $30,000 will see a tax hike in 2021, and we know that people making under $75,000 will see a tax hike by 2027. Also important to note that, as I mentioned before, the Senate and the House are passing different bills. The Senate bill actually has a provision in it to repeal the individual mandate requiring people to get insurance, which would ultimately have a dire impact on people who are relying on those federal subsidies to acquire and obtain affordable insurance. If you cut out the individual mandate, those premiums are going to skyrocket, knocking millions of people off of the insurance rolls. But then lastly, after you get through the Reaganomics and trickle down, after you get through the reversal and hypocrisy of the Republicans, after you acknowledge the real life implications, then you have to sit down and say, why are they continuing to do this? The American people are not in favor of this. It's actually going to raise taxes on the lower middle classes. And it's not been proven with the evidence we have so far to lead us to believe that it's going to boost economic growth. And then you say, oh, I understand. 
They're doing this because they have to pay back their donor class, who's pumped in millions upon millions of dollars into their campaigns. And so when you look at it from that perspective, I hope that you'll be more informed around this GOP tax reform bill, around what it means, and around the impact that it's going to have on not only you and your family, but Americans more broadly. This is the reality we're living in. And the one thing that we can do beyond being outraged is being informed so that we can educate people, inspire people to make phone calls, but importantly, inspire people to realize that every election has consequences and that there's an opportunity in 2018 to make your voice heard and to hold these individuals accountable to say, we want a fair shake. We want an economy that works for everyone. We want a government that's responsive to the needs of all people. And we want a government that's going to look out for the little people and not assume that rewarding their donors and praying that we pick up the scraps is a viable policy solution. Thank you for tuning into the 27th official episode of The Riley Rant. Remember, if it's Sunday, it's time to rant. If it's Sunday, it's The Riley Rant.